to At the Threshold, a podcast for ministry leaders during this new, unsettled season in the life of the church. We are your hosts, Ashley Alley Crawford and Shelley Petz. We're both clergy in the Great Plains Conference of the United Methodist Church, which is comprised of approximately a thousand churches in the states of Kansas and Nebraska. Shelley works with Clergy Faith and Wellness with the Great Plains Conference. And Ashley is the Clergy Recruitment and Development Coordinator, and we're sharing this from the Office of Clergy Excellence. Our focus here in At the Threshold is to host a conversation with and for clergy in order to describe what's happening, ask questions to help get us unstuck, and encourage the heart of pastors and leaders in this liminal time in which we find ourselves. Liminal may be a new word, but a new season calls for a new word. Liminal means a threshold from what we've always known to, well, we don't know just yet what life and ministry is becoming. Our goal here is to find a little light at the threshold. want to welcome this this group that is gathered here today for our conversation. We have about 20 uh, pastors from the Great Plains Conference who are, are joining this conversation today, in addition to three of our bishops um, that we're going to hear from. I am Ashley Alley Crawford, and also leading our conversation today is Shelly Petz. We're both clergy here in the Great Plains Conference, and we're hosting this series of conversation on behalf of the Office of Clergy Excellence as a way to help us kind of navigate our new coronavirus-influenced reality. Well, we are in a liminal season. Liminal is becoming a new word that, that you're hearing lots of places, and it means a threshold. It's kind of got equal parts uncertainty and possibility, though at times you may feel more uncertain or perhaps at times feel more hopeful. In our conversations, we are seeking to describe some of the dynamics that we're all seeing, identify some questions that are bubbling up, but we don't just want to leave it with questions. We want to also look into some places of possibility to encourage our hearts. Each time we gather, it's our hope that you'll glean one or two things to think about, to act upon, to pray through. And our topic today is a conversation with three bishops about spiritual leadership for this season. We really wanted to explore spiritual leadership for this time of, of a season in crisis and this challenging time to see how it is that we can take next steps to see how it is that we can listen to those who have wisdom, experience, passions for leading the church, to see how these bishops can invite us to be guided and to lead us in an example of how we are to follow, honor, and share our love for God and our neighbors. Congregations in this season have been turning to pastors for spiritual leadership, and pastors are turning to the bishops. And so we thank you, bishops, for joining us in this time, in this season, so that we can learn from you to sit at your feet and have an opportunity to dialogue with you. Today, and as a way of invitation, we'll invite our three bishops to share um, a little bit about themselves, where they have served in ministry, and to tell us a surprise opportunity 
they've had during this time. So Bishop Rubin Sines Jr., we welcome you and invite you first um, to share with us this day. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Ashley and Shelley, for um, convening this conversation. This is a very important conversation in the life of, of our church and also just for us personally, as, as we are uh, experiencing at, at a global level something that is common to, to all of our, our humanity. And so and this is not a, a national issue. This is a global issue. And so um, I think it puts us on equal footing with so many throughout the world. And it's made our, our whole planet a, a whole lot smaller uh, as we realize that that we are not independent, but we're interdependent with each other. So my my um, my context for ministry was was Dallas, um, Oak Cliff in Dallas. It was a, a, a community that at one time was 100% white, and because of desegregation uh, and and white flight, it had become 85% Hispanic, um, and and the whole community was was transformed. And I got I got asked to serve there by the North Texas Conference because they did not want to just shut the doors and abandon the urban center. So I served there for two years and I did a lot of work with this, the schools, with Adamson High School and especially worked with the gangs there and did a lot of work with juvenile detention centers um, with the beautification of the community and also uh, house church. I, I had an evangelism campaign that I did for one week in downtown Oak Cliff, but I really was able to, to help the church transition into its its new um, context for ministry, and so that was an incredible experience. Um, I did that for two years, and I served in the apostle for four years. I'll, I'll just make this really short. At that point, uh, there were two former Rio Grande Conference churches. One was down to 20, one was down to 25 members. It was a two-point charge. I was right out of seminary. And uh, after two years, we, we merged the congregations and we grew to 145 in worship attendance. And uh, we had all kinds of things going. I started a, a uh, ministry for those that had been unemployed by Levi and Hasbro when the, when the American company shut down operations in, in the U.S. and moved to Juarez to open up the Maquiladoras and displaced 10,000 workers, and uh, I, I started a, a Levantate, which means get up, computer literacy program to help our, to help unemployed people attain logical job skills. We enter the job market because they were industrial skills, and, and so $45,000 Trinity College and all trained people how to uh, find sustainable work. Um, after that, I served in Edinburgh for 10 years. The issues were colonias there. There was a lot of poverty. A lot of people bought and sold properties that were under, underdeveloped. They were outside of city limits. Uh, so sometimes we had three, four, five neighbors sharing the same water hose, for example, or the same sewer system. Um, and so we, we did a lot of ministry in the colonias to empower people and to give people the tools to, to become self-determined and outreach ministry of our church. I also trained 11 laypersons and sent them out as, uh, to create mission outposts so that we could reach new communities uh, in, in different contexts, mostly in poor contexts. And there are certain San Antonio with uh, new church development and congregational uh, revitalization 
I did 35 to 40 church consultations to help churches find a new vision for themselves. And then uh, I helped plant 11 new churches in San Antonio. And I, and I was elected in 2016 to serve as a bishop for the United Methodist Church and assigned to the Great Great Plains Conference. So here we are. It's great to be with you today. Thank you so much. And is there been a surprise opportunity that you have experienced in these last few months that have come up for you? Uh, you know, I, I've always thought about how can we equip our churches to do justice? And, uh, and really, the, the, um, the readiness level was very low. You know, while, while there was a group of people, a very committed group of people that were very, very passionate about justice issues, uh, they, they, I would say 90% of the church was into mercy ministry and ministries of compassion, but not into ministries of justice. And I think what has happened over these past, um, with the COVID-19 and especially now the, the, uh, the, the killings of uh, George Lloyd and uh, Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor and others, there was one recently, it has kind of seared the consciousness of a nation. Uh, and I, I think, it, and, and also COVID-19 helped reveal the cracks that already were existing in our society, but were kind of you know, glossed over because everything trickles down as long as the well, the well-to-do are doing well, then everybody else benefits from from the success at the top. But but this reality has just shown us a lot of gaps with access to healthcare, with uh, uh, our access to or inaccessibility to to uh, sustainable jobs and Wi-Fi, internet services, and things like that that are broad-based issues that do not just affect communities of color but affect all people. So. So the, the platform and the opportunity to learn about justice and to do justice and to mobilize our churches around justice issues has become much clearer now for those that do not understand what justice was all about. And it, I think it moves beyond you know, the no justice, no peace, uh, aggravated type of justice uh, um, actions that we see on television to more of a, a deeper call to us as disciples of Jesus Christ to ask ourselves, you know, who and what, who am I called to be at this time and what is the Lord calling me to do? So I, th I think that's an opportunity. The question is, how do, we, how do we ensure that this moment does not slip away when the next crisis shows up on our, you know, new cycle? And, uh, and how do we continue to sustain that in, in a way that, that is not going to be, um, how can I say, uh, exhausting, but in a way that, it, that is going to be perseverant moving forward. So, so I, I, I see that as an opportunity for, for, and I'll talk more about that later on. So. Great. Thank you so much. Bishop and Chair Simpson, we welcome you this morning. Invite you to take a bit of time to introduce yourself um, to our group and to share us maybe something that's come up for you as well during this time. Um, Wayne and I live here in um, Katy, Texas, which is um, right outside Houston. My son lives close by, and so that's just lovely. We're really glad to be close to family. We moved into um, uh, senior uh, housing, and that's been pleasant. 
And it's made this time of living in community, even though we were confined to our rooms, we've had all kinds of opportunities to um, uh, help each other. And, and I've felt very blessed by that community since we've been here. Um, I began my, I, I went to seminary in the 60s and began my ministry in the, the civil rights movement. Um, working in um, downtown Boston, Blue Hill Christian Center. And uh, I have, then I waited seven years to be ordained because I was unclear that there was a place for me in the church. Um, I began ordained ministry in 1976, and I have never served anywhere that I wasn't the first woman clergy they had had. Um, but it's been a great joy. I wouldn't have given anything for the journey. I began in White Oak, where they stole my piano, the, uh, because I didn't want a woman clergy person <laughs> very soon after I arrived. But we grew and doubled the attendance in that congregation. And then I was, these were all in Texas. Uh, I was in, that's in uh, the East Texas part of Texas. So I was at White Oak and then I was up north in the, uh, in Texarkana, right on the Arkansas line. And I served both of those for five or six years each. And then I went on the cabinet of the uh, with Bishop Oliphant, and I served a while on the cabinet. And then I was assigned to uh, Westbury United Methodist Church, which was the place I thought I could spend my whole life because it was a multicultural congregation. And I was enormously surprised to be elected to the Episcopacy. I had said I'd make myself available, but I didn't think it would really happen. So I, um, and then I served 12 years in um, Missouri, and I was with you for eight years in Nebraska, and it has been a, a, a wonderful journey. I think that being first woman shaped my ministry. My, my heart was really with racial justice issues, but I presented the issue just by showing up. And so that gave me opportunities. It also sometimes limited how much I could do in other areas because there were times when I felt like I was the only social issue they could deal with at the moment. Um, I have been enormously blessed. Um, in the midst of all of this stuff, it, it Really, the last year has gone by in a blur from the chaos and pain of our called session of general conference and all the extraordinary ugliness that was in the midst of that. And then the uh, then we hit. And I was really trying to work with some groups to to stand up for 
I, like Bishop Sines, have been very committed to justice all my life. And um, I felt like it was important now in retirement to try to lead around the issue of uh, uh, openness of the church to everyone. And then it looked like we were going to move into something new. And so my colleagues asked me to wait a little bit. And so I waited a little bit. And then it's the uh, um, pandemic. And then the joy of seeing what has happened in the last three weeks to the country as they have responded like I've long to see us respond with some real openness uh, to understanding um, white uh, privilege and um, racism. Uh, and until we deal with that, our church and our country are not going to be able to, to move forward the way God calls us to move forward. I've been blessed with many colleagues with uh, great joy in being able to, uh, to read and learn along the way and with persons who invited me to develop the spiritual disciplines and they've sustained me. In fact, if there was anything that has really sustained me in this last year, it's structure. And I think that's also true in retirement, uh, Bishop Blake. I just, uh, in, in the last year, Wayne and I have gotten into a really firm schedule. We ride bikes or swim six days a week. Then we have breakfast. Then we do our devotions. And then we move into the flow of our day. And having that structure has just given me a sense of, of, um, of how to to infuse the day with, with meaning, not just to let it slide by. And I'm very grateful for that. Bishop Ann, thank you so much. We are so grateful you are with us today. Our third bishop is Bruce, Bishop Bruce Blake. We welcome you today and invite you to share with us a bit about your journey and any special um, opportunities that have come up for you in this season as well. Well, <clears throat> thank you for being uh, invited to participate in this. Appreciate uh, what's been shared by Bishop Sines and Bishop Shear. Um, my journey is a journey of uh, in the Kansas West Conference uh, and serving local churches, having the opportunity to uh, served the conference as the conference program director for a few years and then ended up as president of Southwestern College uh, where we now live in Winfield. And uh, that was a place that uh, we expected to be uh, until retirement. And uh, the church uh, changed our uh, uh, path in a surprising election to the Episcopacy. And, uh, and it was surprising uh, not only the fact that I was elected, but also the fact that where I was sent, because as a person from the former northern area of the church and the northern area of the jurisdiction, uh, to be sent to Dallas was uh, uh, different for the jurisdiction and certainly for uh, Karen and myself. And 
we went to Dallas uh, somewhat because of my uh, experience as a college president, uh, Southern Methodist University, the pride and joy of Dallas had experienced a difficult time that affected their life and the death penalty and their athletic program that interestingly enough affected uh, all of the life of SMU. We had the tragedy of the uh, personal behavior and the uh, leading pastor in the conference that brought a lot of the corporate depression uh, to the conference. And so uh, moving to Dallas was uh, new for us and certainly new for Dallas and a person from uh, somewhat of a different perspective. Uh, but we had a great time in, in Dallas. Uh, we had a lot of uh, challenges in a city that it was just trying to um, regain a sense of pride and identity through their journey and the area uh, outside of Dallas. Um, being um, day by day uh, brought into the orbit of the Dallas influence. And uh, then we had the privilege of serving eight years in Oklahoma, both the Oklahoma Conference and the Indian Conference. And the greatest gift that we received from the church uh, was being with the Indian Conference for eight years. Uh, and as uh, the issue of justice has been uh, surfaced in our conversation uh, with uh, the other two um, bishops. Uh, you really understand justice from the uh, bottom side up when you are uh, uh, live with people that uh, uh, have had the journey of the Indian people in the United States as indigenous people and uh, the uh, uh, journey they've had corporately and individually, an incredible gift uh, that Karen and I received. And since retirement uh, in 2004, uh, 16 years ago, we've lived in Winfield, uh, very active in the local church and uh, active in the community and uh, having a ball. And so, uh, as I've shared many times, um, transitions are either, either easy or, or difficult and in our case uh, retirement was incredibly easy and uh, and we've enjoyed our time. In terms of the last three or four months uh, one thing that always helps me in any change in life that we experience is the um, uh, while I just you know, fell into or discovered uh, along the way. And that is that uh, Thanksgiving always works. Um, I did a Bible study a long time ago. And uh, <clears throat> actually, when I was at Southwestern leading a, a church school class, and we did a Bible study on the word of prayer and discovering that the word of prayer is Thanksgiving. And uh, I've just found that uh, anytime things change, uh, the last three months have been different, but my lands, uh, all I have to do is just sort of refer back into uh, the um, spirit of Thanksgiving. And uh, that's how I cope with change, is uh, leading with uh, the understanding of Thanksgiving. And that's my prayer life. and. Uh, my life that I tried to express uh, in all that I do. I really appreciate what's been said about uh, 
uh, how Bishop Sines said that it's uh, the last three months has really stirred the consciousness in our culture. Uh, I too was a part of the civil rights movement in the 60s um, and uh, fought through that. I graduated from seminary in 62. And so my first day, you know, 10 years in the ministry was in the context of the civil rights, the Vietnam War. Uh, those issues uh, were the issues daily that we dealt with, whether it be uh, in, in whatever form of ministry. And um, I, I hope that the stirring of the consciousness will lead to action because as a, as a Jewish rabbi shared with me in Dallas, he said, you know, Bruce, Mike is great. Uh, do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. And, you know, where we are is that uh, we've forgotten to do justice. We really love to do mercy. And uh, don't bring up the issue of humility because we haven't even turned the page to open the book on that. And so, you know, Micah is a great reference point for me in life. But the doing justice is uh, the first call and the call that for some reason we as a culture and we as a people have decided to leapfrog and go on to easier things. Good. It's so good to, to hear from each of you and to hear some threads of um, similarity through, through each of your message um, and also just to be able to envision um, the ways that you are engaging this season and and um, and it, so it's it's great to hear to hear from each of you. Well, um, Shelly kind of alluded to uh, the fact that you know congregation members look to their pastors, their pastors are, are looking to the bishop to to speak a word. And so I want to ask each of you to put on your your pastor um, hat and heart right now. Um, and you know, as a pastor, what what word do you have of encouragement or of challenge? Um, what's a pastoral word you have um, for those pastors and ministry leaders out there right now during this season? Bishop Bishop Signs, would you start? Would you start first? And you've shared you've shared a lot with us, and we're so grateful. Um, I've, I've heard great response to the leadership um, that you have offered. But but what's a what's a pastoral kind of charge that you would give to your pastors right now? Okay, got it. <laughs> Thanks for the message. Whenever there's a crisis, we, we immediately assess how it's going to affect me, us, myself, my, my immediate people. Um, then if it's a true crisis, then we can feel isolated immediately and turn inward. But one of the first things that I do when, when there's a crisis, especially as a pastor, since you are the point person there, you are the, you are the person that the congregation is looking to for direction, is who do I need to have a conversation with? Just to kind of process and, and, um, um, and try to understand, uh, understand what's going on to make a, a proper assessment before taking action. I'm, I'm a high content person. I like a lot of content before I become a low content person. And so my first reaction in a time of crisis is make sure that the bills are paid, make sure that your people are safe and make sure that, that, uh, that you know, you're, you're going to make it for the, for the short term. So immediately, 
ensure that livelihood is going to be sustained, whatever needs to happen, uh, first of all. And so, you know, personally speaking, that, that's, that's my first reaction. But then as a bishop who's in charge of the temple affairs of the conference, I got to think about the well-being of the whole, of a thousand churches and 250 people, 250,000 people and 700 clergy. So what do they need? And what do the churches need right now so that they can survive, keep the lights on and keep on functioning in ministry? That's, that's the first thing. Once that is, and that's why we went into the moratorium on, on uh, mission shares to alleviate some of those pressures so the churches could focus on, on um, stabilizing themselves and, and provide churches with a lot of resources about COVID and, and updates and things like that. Make sure that everyone has what they need to function, to continue operating. Uh, so that's number one. But then it's it's just kind of assessing what's what's going on. And this is where I, I'm very intentional about having conversation with people that I trust, starting with my immediate family. I mean, my, my wife, Maya, she hears probably more about this stuff than most people do. Uh, and even though, she, you know, she, you know she, she's a she's a good listener. Um but I, I reach out to other colleague bishops and, um, and key pastors and cabinet and others to kind of get a, a, a perspective. And then I try to do as much learning as I can. What, one of the things that happens whenever there's a crisis, it's a time to learn. And I find myself chasing rabbits into the rabbit holes. Like, you know, I, whenever I, I, I talk about, for example, white privilege, and I'll go into the rabbit hole and pull books on white privilege and read all I can about white privilege in as short amount of time as I can. Uh, when I talk, when I read about the statistics for, you know, the, the, the black, the black persons who get arrested uh, and then within them, you know, well, how do the Hispanics, you know, fare or the Asians or the Koreans, how do the women fare? And I just, I just try, it's, it's, it's an educational uh, steep learning slope for me. And I, then I try to listen to both sides of the issue. And, and so I'm, I'm, I'm data hungry at that point and I'm, and I'm, and I'm information hungry. Um, and I try to look at the perspective from different, I put myself in the perspective of, you know, George Lloyd's family and the perspective of the police officers and the perspective of the, the legislators. And I, I, I go through these mental scenarios just to try to understand what can I see from this perspective that I can't see from that perspective and how does that help provide for me a type of a global understanding of the broader issues and get into the historical context. You know, what is the history of, of uh, killing of black men by white officers or white people in the history of our nation? Well, you don't have to go very far with that. And, and, and then I pray and ask for guidance and understanding. I look for biblical narratives that speak to the issue at hand. And then I start to develop a plan in consultation with those that are near me, those that I have influence, to say what can we on together that we can, you know, do uh, as a response. I, I don't like to react. I like to respond. Reacting is it, it, it's like a, a bottle rocket. It, it goes up and pops, and then it comes down, and you never hear the end of it. I, I like a long, steady pull as as uh, in the same direction, and we're going to go in that direction. And let's keep our hands to the plow. Let's let's see what the target is, and let's keep on plowing that direction without taking a hand off the plow to stop or to look back and say, "I'm tired of plowing this this road. Let me let me just focus on something else." So you know, once once that direction is set, then you just work the plan, and then have measurements and and other things that you can check progress to 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 see how things are going. And so 
Um, it, it, it takes me a while, but I, I think so much of this is, is, um, is, is discernment. And, and the larger the organization, the, 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 the more comprehensive your approach needs to be. If you have a church of 50 people, it's one thing. If you have a church of 500, it's another thing. If you have a, a, a conference of, you know, 85,000 average worship attendees with 700 clergy, that's another thing. And so the question is, how do you start scaling? How do you start resourcing? Start ensuring, you know, that, you know, God's creative act. God saw, was displeased, so God created, but then God provided the, the provision to sustain the creation. And so any project that doesn't have provision to sustain itself in the long run, you have to rethink it. So that it, it, every project needs to have a creative plan, it needs to have the provisions, and it has, it has to have the sustainability uh, in, in mind. Otherwise, you have the idea with no provision, and it doesn't sustain, and then it becomes another crazy idea. So, so when I think of stuff like that, it's like, how are we going to create it, provide for it, and make sure that it's sustained for the long haul? And make sure it's prioritized, which means you got to leave other things off of your plate so that you focus your energy on that and not just continue to, to, to uh, diffuse your energy over 150 projects. And so what do you select, what do you need to let go of to focus on that? And so that takes work. It, it, it takes work and that's my model. Um, I, I trust and depend upon the wisdom of the people that I am surrounded with, amazing people. So that's that's how I approach it, and and I think you know you you can break that down, and I can do that in my own personal family, you know, and I've done that many times, and I've done that as a business person, I've done that as a coach, I've done that as a teacher trying to get my students to pass, I've done that in every context for ministry and, and congregational development. How do you organize the whole program, and and now as a denomination? So um, it's but it's kind of like a tea bag. You got to let it steep in the hot water for a little bit to extract. <laughs> all the, the essence out of it to get the most flavor so that it can, it can brew a, a good cup of tea and, and, uh, and, and have something that's gonna make an impact in the long term. Yeah. So that, that's kind of my process. And, and you know, as clergy, you have your network leaders, you have uh, friends outside of your network, outside of the conference, and many of you have uh, a Facebook connection. Draw from those and talk, talk your stuff out, map it out, you know, design it, Think through, think it through. The hardest work of any direction is figuring out what's it going to take. What's it going to take to get this done? And I'd say that's like ninety job. Once you once you figure that out, the rest is implementation. And uh, once you get people to to you know, and, and you don't do that. It's not on your own. You you do that by by dialoguing and by understanding, you know, what the readiness level is at different places, and then you kind of shoot a little bit higher. <laughs> And then and then move from there. So good. Thank you. You're challenging us into deep, um, deep rhythms and deep practices of discernment. And you used good words like listen and learn. Um, and um, so that's that's great. Thank you. That's a good word to to your pastors here. Well, Bishop Ann, I'd love to hear from you. Um, what what's a pastoral word that you have to to kind of um, speak into into the pastors' hearts that are listening today? I so appreciated what Bishop Sines 
had to say. And as we look at the three letters that have come out, and I, because of my love for Nebraska and the Great Plains Conference, I, I, I continue to follow his leadership. I have just marveled at what the letters to the conference have been, Bishop Signs. They have been so on target, and your reflection and discernment is very clear in those, in, in all three of these difficult situations in which we found ourselves recently, and I'm appreciative. Thank you. For the thing I would add, I think there are two or three. One, to really love and care for your people. Keep those relationships strong. Have many voices that you talk with. Hear the perspective of many different people. And treat every perspective with real, uh, with, with dignity. I may, I may really disagree with what you have to say, but you are a, a person of worth and value, one of God's children. And I've got to have the capacity to listen and try to see you as a person and understand your perspective. And that, I think, is critical to making any decision. Another one is non-anxious presence. Unless we are comfortable with ourselves and with the situation in which we find ourselves, we find we make the people anxious. And so uh, as we are, are able to come with that non-anxious presence after a time of study and prayer and settling ourselves down, I think we can handle any situation much better. And I've found all the Friedman work really, really significant. And that's been a, a big deal in Nebraska. And I've, I've appreciated that. Um, I also think it's important to move confidently when you move. Not roughshod over people, but with a real sense that this I'm hopeful. God's at work here. I believe that um, this is not such a crisis that we're going to cave in. Instead, we have the gifts, and God's given us the strength and ability to deal with every situation we find. And if we would, if we can move with with confidence and hope, to be, for people to be reminded that God is already at work before we get there to help out. <laughs> then we are, are a little less burdened and a little less angry and a little less harsh and a little more able to move in with a, a love and a care that I think is the, the pattern for the 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 Christian life. I am, um, I also think we have to keep reading and learning and growing it, that we never get to the place that we know all the answers. Uh, 
I found Anatomy of Peace extraordinarily helpful as we were dealing with, as we continue to deal with all the issues in our denomination. Uh, right now I'm reading White Fragility, and that's an extremely helpful book in, in reminding myself that in the community where I live, now that I'm retired, and in those places where I have a little bit of, of uh, opportunity, that I want to um, talk from my perspective, speak confessionally about how I am involved in white supremacy, how, how my, um, how the structural understanding of racism is so hard for us. One of the things I really appreciate about Robert D'Angelo is that over, uh, Robin, over and over and over, the author tells us, I'm not telling you you're bad people. I'm telling you we have bad structures. So to begin to make those kind of differentiations and to keep learning about how to share and give of ourselves. Great. Thank you so much. It's great to hear um, in the posture of you, you use the phrase non-anxious presence um, early on and um, being able to kind of keep a sense of the Holy Spirit's guidance into, into all the circumstances that you speak of, I think is at the heart of, of everything that you share. So thank you. That's so good to hear. Bishop Blake, I'd love to hear um, a pastoral word to, to, to a pastor listening today. What, what would you have to say? Well, I don't know if I have much to add. Um, uh, wonderful, beautiful statements have been made. I guess I would uh, just lift up three words pastorally that um, always work for me in terms of our being as leaders. And the first one would be to uh, be aware. Um, it's easy in a time of crisis to get into a cocoon. Um, and uh, not be aware of what's going on and the thoughts and feelings of those for whom we are pastorally responsible, uh, where they're coming from. And so be aware. Uh, and that means uh, break out of any cocoon that starts to form around us because we're separated and uh, do everything you can to, to be aware of where those for whom you're called to serve um, happen to be in life. And uh, the second word would be to, uh, to be a listener. Um, it's so easy when we're in contact with persons to share where we're coming from, but it's so essential pastorally to listen first, to be sure we're responding to who another person is and what their thoughts are instead of uh, offering where we are. And uh, I think, uh, so first of all, be aware. Secondly, uh, to, to be a listener. And thirdly, um, to be empathetic. Um, it's so easy in a time when everything is sort of up in the air to be sympathetic. I'm always reminded of the story of the Good Samaritan when the 
the bishop and district superintendent is walking down the road and they notice the guy in the ditch. And my hunch is in our common, uh, in our words of today, they probably sent a sympathy card, you know? Because <laughs> sympathy is an easy response to feel sympathetic. But uh, leadership is not one of sympathy, it's one of empathy. It's the willingness to, to get into the ditch. It's the willingness to wear the moccasins of another. And so I think in, a, in the time that we're in, the only pastoral words that I would give would be, be aware, be a listener, and be empathetic. Thank you so much, Bishop Blake. Thank you to each of you for exploring that question with us. We know that some of you on this call may have questions for the bishops as well. If any of you do have something that you would like to ask, we invite you to place a question into the chat box or to send it privately to Ashley or myself so that we can ask those questions to uh, the bishops. And so I invite you to do that. As you're looking at that opportunity for some of those questions, we have some questions for each of you bishops um, individually. Bishop Signs, we ask to you, as we have explored these conversations today, how do we steward what is arising? That's, that's a big question because we only steward part of it. We don't steward all of it, but I think part of, the, part of our task is to, is to be clear about what is our portion of this work to steward and then to do it well. Um, obviously we don't steward the nation and we don't steward our state, but we do steward congregations we do steward the leaders that we work with. We do steward, um, you know, the, the spheres of influence that, that we have. There, there's so much of this that is out of our control. It's not even funny. And we can get exasperated with, you know, what we cannot control. And I, I like Ryan Holniebert's prayer, the serenity prayer. It helps me out so much. I have to determine, first of all, what I have a direct control over and of and live with the anxiety that that is created in me by by the stuff that's happening that is outside of my control so um and i, I think you know whether it's it's covid19 or helping the churches stay the course or or to continue to practice the, the new behaviors that they have learned because of covid19 past, you know, past the pandemic and how they're going to incorporate that into the new way of being in church. That's one thing, or whether it's this, you know, racial equality and, and injustice in our area. And in our area, you know, there, there we do have pockets where we have a high density of African-Americans, but most of our racial injustice issues have to do with our uh, recently arrived Central Americans who work at our meatpacking plants who are a very integral part of our food processing um, distribution chain and who have absolutely no rights and they're treated, you know, not, not as essential workers or 
because they're non-essential persons. They're discardable, they're deportable, they're you know, uh, discoverable and without any access to benefits, unemployment um, uh, benefits or, or any type of, of safety net. Yet, you know, without them, that's why our meat prices are at $15 a pound in the grocery stores and why, you know, there, there's, there's no food there. And so for, for us, so much of that has got, has got to do with, with how we're going to do justice for that, the, those communities that are in, in our area. Um, I know one city in Nebraska, I will not mention any names, who hired a person and paid him $100,000 a year to ensure that nobody without documentation rents or buys property in the city. I mean, but yet people work right outside of Schuyler and other places in the meat packing plant. They just don't want those people in their cities. But that's besides the point. Um, Steward, this opportunity is... Is something that that we will do tentatively, but we cannot really understand the impact that we've had until we look back in hindsight or perspective and ask ourselves, what what have we done? What difference have we made? And you know, have we moved the needle in one direction or another? I think that's part of our of our work in ministry. Again, the, the prayer by by Father Dearden says, you know, we're, we're not messiahs, we're ministers, we're not master builders, we're workers. We try to get a good sense of, you know, where we need to go and, and how and help our church. And for me, I see this as, as stewarding the discipleship. That's one thing that, that I have a, 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 a say so, is how do we form and shape our United Methodist disciples in the Great Plains Conference through our uh, our initiatives and our uh, how we resource our churches and justice initiative, biblical justice and other things like that. And if and if we can see, and this will need to have markers, if we can see our work increasing over the next two, three, five, six, seven, eight years, then we will know that we have maximized the opportunity to steward this moment effectively. Um, but but for right now, it's just it's just following the light until you can see the end of it, then following a few more feet and following a few more feet and following a few more feet. Hopefully you're you're moving in the right direction. So so we need a we need a steward justice ministries. Um, again, we're we're good at nurture, we're good at worship, we're good at you know all these other things. But, but we really need to steward justice ministries. And we, we've got a plan for that with work and dark. So we'll see where we're at in, in two, three years and see what, you know, what gains we have made uh, as a conference in response to our different contexts for ministry. So. Thank you so much. Here's a question. We'll open it to any of the three of you um, as comes from our um, our group today. I have a question about the larger context of emergent Christianity, the 500-year rummage sale. The vision of emergent Christianity emphasizes issues of decolonization, decolonizing the institution of religion. How do you see everything that is happening in relation to that? Oh, 
I'll take a, a, a short stab at it. Go ahead. I think uh, I think religion is on its way out. Um, religion, uh, as defined as the human attempt to get to God, has worn pretty thin. And to the extent that the church identifies as a, itself as a religion, I think the church is on the way out. On the other hand, uh, faith is a belief that the love of God has come uh, to uh, the, the human scene. And uh, faith instructs us in a different way than religion because uh, faith sends us out into the world uh, to express and share God's love. And we're uh, a sent community into the world and in my judgment, if uh, the church identifies itself as a faith movement sent into the world to serve rather than as a religious entity that is chosen by God to be the custodian of God's word, um, I, I think we have a choice. And uh, to the extent that uh, the church identifies itself as a part of the religious establishment of our cultures of the world today, I think it's on its way out. But there's a great, always a great hope and future in faith. And so as a faith movement sent into the world to share God's love, uh, I think it's a bright future. But we've got to move away from the identity as a religion, and we've got to move to the identity as a faith movement of love in the world. And that love in the world is not primarily about rules or who we can keep out or who we judge, but it's an open-hearted love that invites all kinds of perspectives in and crosses interreligious boundaries that crosses uh, all of the boundaries that we've kept around ourselves. So we're in our own little boxes. I pray that that kind of uh, moving out uh, with vulnerability and uh, a willingness to give up power will characterize the next phase of our life together. Thank you so much. Another question that has come in. It says, I'm wondering as a coach of clergy, how to encourage pastors, especially in rural areas, predominantly white and entrenched in white privilege, to have courage to address publicly in their churches, the issues of racism and white privilege. The one piece I would add is that we have to love the people we have. As I moved from graduate school in Boston to small rural communities in East Texas, the biggest challenge for me was not to judge them, but to love them. I think. And as I 
cared about them and loved them and got to know them and drank coffee over the table in the kitchen and knew their children and went to the football game and just shared in that life, I be, they began to think, to accept me and my love for them enough that they would let me say why I thought differently from them. And I think it's a right we have to earn. I would respond in having a lot of experience in terms of rural and small churches that as a pastor, I think, uh, you know, we're, we're given the rubric of word, order, and sacrament. And if we look at word that is preaching and teaching, I'm, I'm concerned that we think the only way that we can uh, work with our people to an understanding of, let's take the issue of that systematically we're all white supremacists uh, as Anglo people. We're, we're, you know, we're there. We're white racist, uh, if not in personal attitudes of and actions of discrimination. Nevertheless, we're, we're caught up in benefiting from being uh, Anglo. But to me, to address that in a rural community, that is primarily Anglo and the words we're using in this conversation are foreign to them, I think it issues in an invitation to the educational ministry of pastors that I think can easily be neglected. i just end up by saying uh, in the 1960s, uh, we dealt in Ransom, Kansas with a study group studying honest to God, that God is dead, and all of the um, revolutionary theological thought of the day, I never mentioned one time any of that from the pulpit. But we did in a teaching context. And I think we ought to approach our people today, not through preaching, but through teaching, where you can experience a miracle of dialogue and growth, uh, not in a, in a setting of proclamation that disallows immediate response and questions. Shelly, can you repeat the question? My internet was stable. I've had to switch over to my um, cellular um, signal. Sure. Yeah. The question is, I am wondering, as a coach of clergy, how to encourage pastors, especially in rural areas predominantly white and entrenched in white privilege, to have courage to address publicly in their churches the issues of racism and white privilege. Yeah, and I just picked up a little bit about what Bishop Shearer said and what Bishop Blake said, but I'd, I'd like to go back to the to the previous question, and I would echo what Bishop Blake and what Bishop Shearer said about about our now that that we have been freed from the trappings of buildings and we've really had to find a way to express the gospel as love as Christ outreaching love I I think that's that's the the, the church of the future is going to be much more organic it's going to be much more relational uh, and it's going to be much more collaborative with other people who so we can come around common interests together. The, the church working in isolation to, you know, to, to save the world 
um, is is gonna is going to is it's going to be called to be a participant and a co-creator in this new thing that is happening together with organizations with our ecumenical sisters and brothers and even with pe- people of interfaith, uh, Jewish and Muslim and, and others, or people of no faith, um, so that we can work together for, for the good. Otherwise, we're going to cocoon ourselves out of existence. But okay, so that's that. As far as, you know, how do you talk? Look, uh, let's be real. A lot of our people in our, in, our, in our areas have never been around, have never been a minority majority anywhere. They, ha- they haven't served in the military. They haven't been on a football team. <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, they haven't been in, in, in college campuses where, the, where, where they are the majority minority. They have no experience. And so, so inherently, the, 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 the white privilege has just been deeply rooted in their, in their own understanding. And, and they, they, have no under, they have no self-awareness, to use Bishop Blake's language, that, that they are. It's just the way the world works, but it's not. It's not. And, and people that have been majority minorities or minority majorities, like I have, I've been a, a minority majority person most of my life, where most of the people that I, you know, in my context, uh, they were 80, 90% Hispanic, and being brown was a norm, being any other color was not. And so that's the world I've come out of. And so now I'm in a different world and, and I have to navigate that in a, in a different way. But I'm very self-aware of where I am. Uh, but I've, and, and for me, part of that has been curiosity about other people. What I find is that some people don't have any curiosity for anybody else because to open oneself with humility, and Bishop Blake said we haven't even turned a page on that, but to open myself and believe that the other person has something of value to share with me is really, you know, for me to step down from my position of power and make myself vulnerable in a way that I might not want to give up certain things if I come to new realizations. And so, so much of it is about the maintenance of one's power and privilege, which then even shuts out the possibility of learning from someone who I think is beneath me, so to speak. I, th- I think immersion experiences are, are excellent. Take people out of their context and go stick them in a place where they're not going to be you know, the majority anymore, where they have to learn and they have to to respect and honor someone else. Uh, you know, that said, we do have the highest number of international pastors in any conference throughout our denomination, I believe. And our congregations have done an outstanding job of receiving our international pastors. And so as from the congregational perspective, our people have been, you know, by and large, extremely good about that. But the, some of the communities where pastors serve, you know, have not been as welcoming as our as our churches have. So I'm really proud of the way that our church has received our international clergy. But there's no way to get around this other than exposure and and interaction with people that are different than than you. And so mission trips are very important um, to different places and different contexts to 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 have people see the, a bigger world out there which will then, you know, lower down the suspicion and, and reshape the stereotypes and the bias and the prejudice that people have, you know, because then, then you, move, you move away from racializing uh, a, a characteristic, oh, like, oh, those people are all like that, 
Well, anytime you start using that kind of language and paint whole communities with a broad brush stroke or as some monolithic, you know, group, you you have just uh, separated yourself from from the possibility of being transformed by 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 anyone because because you you've created a barrier and that's sin that that's a sin when when you we create those kinds of barriers sin is not just you know my own personal holiness it's a sin that keeps me out of relationship with the other uh, whether it's institutional sin or per, you know or, or things like that so. So I, you know, and and who knows? We may not even get there. I, sometimes I'm hopeful. Sometimes I'm a realist. But if we can change one heart, one mind at a time, then I think we'll have made progress in the kingdom. Is, is nearer, is drawing nearer. But the thing is that you know, for me, I mean, racism doesn't. I mean, so we, we put all the pressure on the church to teach. Hey, this stuff, this stuff starts at the home. It starts around the dinner table. It starts around the comments as people are watching television and the parents are making comments about what's going on and the children are picking up on it. And then they, they, get, they get taught to think that way. It, starts, it, it doesn't start in the, in the church. It starts in the home. And, and uh, you know what the children hear their parents say about the other shapes their understanding of the world that they then go out to engage. And so, and, and for me, how do we move the, the onus of the responsibility back to the home, uh, to people who, who are Christ followers, uh, so that they take responsibility for how they're shaping the thought life and the attitudes and the values of their children. Thank you so much. We want to close with this question for each of you, for you indeed are our spiritual leaders. How can we pray for you as a leader, someone that others are looking to during this season? Yeah, I, I just I just pray for, for more wisdom and for more, pray for, pray for more wisdom, for more understanding. And then, you know, when, when the directions are set, and they're not, you know, that's one thing about leadership is that you have to, you have to learn really quickly that you're not going to please everybody. And, uh, and some people are going to be upset. So, um, and I hear it every time I issue a statement or a letter, you know, I get an earful from some sector of, of the conference. But just, just for boldness and, and for, for a sense of peace. And, you know, my, my dad was a high school principal. And uh, and I watched him, and he was a school superintendent, and he was also a, uh, a dean of a community college, and he he was a public educator for fifty two years. And sometimes I'd watch him, and and people would come to him with all kinds of issues, and he would just say, "This is that, this is that, this is that. You, you, you go move forward with that. Think about this. Go back and double check that." And I would watch him, and in ten minutes, he'd make like fifteen or twenty decisions. And, and and then he he makes some decisions that are that were that were tough because you know anytime you make decisions that that create change or destabilization or or disrupt the homostasis of of, a, of an institution, there's going to be all kinds of pushback. And I said, how do you do it? I asked him, how do you do it? He says, if you make the right decision and you have peace in your heart about it, it doesn't matter if ten thousand people are against you. It's the right thing to do, and 
move forward with it and trust God is with you. And so I, I try to find that peace and that sense of, you know, I, I love you. Like Bishop Shearer said, I love you. We might disagree on that, but this is the direction we're heading. At the same time, you don't want to be so, so, uh, so reckless that, that you take a step like that without making sure that you have that the trust of the community that you have demonstrated competence and be able to say, you know, I don't agree with everything that person is saying or does, but I know that person is, 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 is fair and honest and just and seeking to do the right thing. So, you know, here we go, right? I mean, you, you don't want to do that immediately, but, and you have to gauge where if the, if the community has trust in you. Otherwise, if, if, you're, if you're leading somewhere and you turn back and no one's following you, you're just out for a long walk by yourself. And so how do you, how do you make sure that, that when you look back, there's people that are walking with you? And uh, it's, it's that, and those for me are the opportune times. Because sometimes the action is right, but the time is not ready. And so my, my thing is, how do you ready the time so that the opportunity and the readiness meet together, and then you have that that movement forward. So that's it. Thank you. Bishop Shear, how may we pray for you? I'm grateful for the concern and love and prayers that that people give. Um, I would ask you not only to pray for me that I can be the person that God calls me to be and have the good sense to know when to be quiet and when to speak. Um, I've struggled with that all my life. Um, I also would like you to pray for the, the church that some of the kinds of things that we talked about today might be more integral to our regular uh, ongoing work. It is not enough to grow the church. We have to grow in the likeness of Christ and in a capacity to relate to people like Jesus related to them. And I, I pray that some of our deep need to regulate the whole world will, will be uh, diminished and our willingness to, to listen and to care and to find the next steps that are going to be very different. We have to be creative. We have to move in a new way. And I have seen so so many wonderful examples of people who are uh, are during this pandemic who have uh, who have found gifts they didn't even know they had to do church in radically different ways. If we can hold on to that and continue to be a radically different church, I think God can use us. And we need our prayers. We need the prayers of all of our people for that new vision of a new heaven and a new earth to become clear to us 
and, and for our passion for that to increase and our tolerance with the people who, who don't see it as we do to, to increase. Not tolerance, but love. For me and for all peoples. Thank you. And Bishop Blake. Since I'm a Jesusian, I would simply be humbled by your prayer that I will hang on to Jesus in all that I do and all that I say. Well, thank you. That uh, it is a good reminder that the essential is the, that's the main point, right? Uh, that we hang on to Jesus. We are so grateful for this time that you all have so generously shared with us and just sharing your um, sharing your faith um, and your the ways that God is at work in and through you. We appreciate the wisdom that you've offered um, and the challenge and the encouragement that, that each of you have shared with us. Um, this really does in, invite us deeper into to, to strengthening our discernment muscles, to listening, to learning, to praying. Um, to, to expressing gratitude. And, and ultimately, I hear sort of a deep invitation into a posture of humility, knowing that God's work is, um, is moving forward in this season and that new, new possibilities are being birthed, really, um, for, for being able to help um, initiate the kingdom of God um, in this season. So we are so grateful for each of you and your presence here with us today. You're getting lots of thanks in the chat, so I hope you see those. We are grateful for your time here today. Just a word of invitation. We will gather again um, in a call, a call on July 2nd at 10.30 in the morning to be discussing something that um, the congregations and every pastor has experienced in different ways regarding death and COVID-19. Each of you is invited to join in this. We will be having three speakers with us that day. One is Dr. Steve Short, who is a physician in Manhattan, Kansas, who served for two weeks in a COVID hospital in Brooklyn during the height of the pandemic. His father was um, a pastor in the United Methodist uh, Church in Western Kansas and a district superintendent, Reverend Mel Short. And so Dr. Steve Short will be joining us as well as Reverend Shelley McNaughton-Lawrence, who is a pastor at Aldersgate United Methodist Church in Olathe. Her mother contracted COVID-19 in the hospital and subsequently died. And she will be sharing her journey of death in this season, wow. as well as serving as a pastor. And Reverend Becky Johnson, who serves as a chaplain at University of Lawrence, or University of Kansas Medical Center, will be joining us, bringing the chaplain's perspective. You can register for this or upcoming conversations and find other resources as well as this will be online again um, um, in a podcast form at greatplainsumc.org slash at the threshold. Well, as
as we, we like to kind of close our time together with um, a thought, um, a, a word, a, a prayer, a poem. And today, as we were kind of talking about our sense of this season, we found this this word from Pierre Tilhard de Chardin. Please don't judge my French um, <laughs> pronunciation of his name. <laughs> um, but um, hear these words and receive this as a blessing, as a challenge, as an encouragement to each of you today. Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything to reach the end without delay. We should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet it is the law of all progress that is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Your ideas mature gradually, let them grow. Let them shape themselves without undue haste. Don't try to force them on as though you could be today what time, that is to say grace and circumstances acting on your own goodwill, will make of you tomorrow. Only God could say what this new spirit gradually forming within you will be. Give our Lord the benefit of believing that his hand is leading you and accept the anxiety of feeling, of feeling yourself in suspense and incomplete. Well, I want to thank everybody who joined us in this conversation. And whether you are joining today, right now, or listening later, we hope that you've been able to see our new reality a little bit clearer, ask a few new questions, and that your heart has been encouraged. So uh, Shelly and I will stay on for a few minutes. If the bishops want to hang around as well, you're welcome to, to stay on the chat. Um, and, and regardless, we hope that you are finding some light at the threshold. joining us in this series about ministry in liminal time. You can find links to join future conversations at greatplainsumc.org slash clergy resources or listen to them as a podcast at greatplainsumc.org slash podcasts. This is a challenging season full of confusion and uncertainty and we want to shed a little light to help you discern the way through. Thank you for joining us at The Threshold.